What a blessing to know that God is with us. He's always with us. That Jesus Christ, the incarnate Lord, is God with us in the flesh. He came and and dwelt among us, and then he sent his Holy Spirit. He sent his Holy Spirit to be with each of us individually and to be with us as a body when we gather like this and worship him. So we trust that we worship this morning in the presence of Christ by his Spirit. We trust this morning that what we are doing is, uh, as we've talked about before, something that angels desire to look into. We thank the Lord for this time to gather. Today we begin the final stretch and climax of our mini-series on Romans chapters 9 to 11. Please go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 11 verses 1 to 10, that first chunk of text there at the beginning of Romans 11. We've been in Romans now for about a year and a half, and for the last few months we've been in this little three-chapter section, uh, chapters 9 through 11, and it really does constitute a a big chunk of this letter, Paul's most well-known letter, uh, the one he wrote to the Christians in Rome. And Paul is dealing with the issue of Israel's unbelief, Israel's system of works righteousness, Israel's rejection of Christ. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. Why? Because they were pursuing righteousness by means of works of the law, trying to earn their way to attaining God's righteousness. And in that, they stumbled over Christ, who himself is God's righteousness. And by receiving the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, we become righteous in God's sight. Well, Israel rejected this system of justification by faith and this system with Christ himself at the center. And they rejected it both corporately and largely. They rejected it corporately and nationally as Israel. And uh, they also rejected it individually as a majority. And so this is, I think, one of the reasons why Romans 9 through 11 is so difficult for interpreters is because you have those who want to emphasize the corporate dynamic that Israel as an entity, as a people, as a nation, is what Paul is dealing with in Romans 9 through 11. And to that I would say, yes. And you have others who want to sort of exclude that corporate aspect and want to focus exclusively on the individual dynamic of those individual Israelites who have either rejected Christ or who have been saved. And to that I would say, yes, of course. Both are present and in many ways they're woven together throughout Romans 9 through 11 so that it it does become difficult to, as Calvin will often say, untie that knot. It becomes difficult to untie that knot in a way that makes sense of corporate, national people of God, Israel, and individual Israelites and their salvation. But I think we've seen both of those. This whole idea of Israel's rejection of Christ, of uh, of Israel's unbelief, has raised questions about God's faithfulness and his justice. 
We saw that when Paul first introduced this topic in chapter 9. That's the first place he goes, is to vindicate God's word of promise and his righteousness, his justice. God's word, his trustworthiness, and his righteousness are on the line. And Paul wants to make clear that those things stand. And this question of Israel's rejection of Christ and unbelief has also brought us into that tension, that famous tension that exists between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We have seen that all throughout these chapters. So we've talked about God's election on the one hand, but we've also talked about Israel's sin on the other. And I want you to notice that Paul is in intent to, to discuss both of these things simultaneously and side by side. God's election and Israel's sin. Uh, neither of those undermines the other. And I hope that as, we, as we've gone through this, that this has helped you to see that God's sovereignty doesn't exclude prayer. Uh, we saw Paul praying for them. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, he says. It doesn't, it doesn't undermine or exclude prayer. It does not undermine evangelism. Paul is desiring that they be saved. And we know that early in his ministry, Paul would go to where? The synagogues. He would go to his kinsmen according to the flesh. He would go to fellow Jews and preach the gospel of God's grace through Christ. He is active, knowing what he knows about God's sovereignty, knowing what he knows about God's redemptive plan, he is nonetheless active in sharing Christ with the Jewish people. So God's sovereignty does not undermine our prayers, it does not undermine our evangelism, and it does not undermine human responsibility for sin. Every human being who will be in hell, will be justly in hell. Justly punished for their sins. Justly under the wrath of God. Justly judged in accordance to what they have done in the body throughout their life here on earth. So we see that Paul is quite happy Unlike many philosophers, Christian philosophers in our day, Paul is quite happy to simply hold up God's sovereignty, God's electing purposes, and human responsibility in the midst of that. He's quite happy to hold those up and to let them remain in tension. And here's the thing for us. I mean, we, we have that with other doctrines, have we, as we've talked about before, the Trinity and Christ union, and one person, God and man. We've talked about that. And, and so just because we can't work this tension out in our limited rational capacities does not make it untrue. And so I hope that our time in Romans 9 through 11 has at the very least helped you to sort of sort through that in your own mind as you think about these theological truths from God's Word. By the time you get to the end of chapter 10, 
As we think about Israel's unbelief, by the time you get to the end of chapter 10, which is where we finished last week, the situation for Israel seems pretty terrible and hopeless. It seems like a lost call. So we read these words. This is where we finished last week. Chapter 10, verse 21. All day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's God speaking through Uh, the prophet, that is God speaking to his people all day long. I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people, a people who have no interest in submitting to my word and who are contrary to me, as enemies to me and my cause. That's where we ended last week. It really doesn't get any worse than that, the picture of Israel that Paul has painted from chapter 9, verse 30, all the way up to that verse in chapter 10, verse 21, naturally leads to the question that we find at the beginning of chapter 11. And here it is. I ask then, the, the word then tells us he's, he's springing off of what he's just said, all that he's, he's just described. I ask then, has God rejected his people? You know, this would be a natural question. After reading all that we've read, this would be the most logical, natural way to move forward. And we've seen how Paul does that in in other parts of of his letter. He'll, He'll make a case and then he'll anticipate an objection that would naturally follow from what he said. Now, not always naturally follow because we've seen that some of those objections are ridiculous. And Paul wants to, to show them for what they are. And this itself is also ridiculous. The notion that God would reject his people. That's a That's a contradiction in terms. But it is at the very least a natural question to ask after you've gone through all that Paul has said from the end of chapter 9 up through the end of chapter 10. And Paul's response is an emphatic no, by no means. In the King James Version, God forbid, absolutely not. It cannot be the strongest way to say no in all of Scripture. And Paul does it quite a bit. No, no, no. And from that very clear answer, he then goes on to basically summarize or pull together all that he's been saying about Israel's current situation. So what we're looking at today is going to be very much a summary, but it's going to bring it to a point. It's going to bring it to to, to a close We're going to look at all of verses 1 to 10 today because uh, in many ways they have to be held together as one unit of summary. And so the title for the sermon this morning is Summing Up Israel's Situation. And we'll look at 11, 1 to 10. So if you'll go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Summing Up Israel's Situation. This is the word of God. It is perfect and profitable for his people. We could begin at chapter 9, verse 30, but I'm not going to do that to you. So we'll, we'll just pick up at 11. I'm assuming all the times we've read that, you've got that locked in into your brain. So chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite 
a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And then I want to go ahead and read the next verse to you because you'll see kind of where we're headed. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. So we're going to see a continuation of Paul's argument as we move forward, but it's going to kind of begin to move in a different direction. So uh, you can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his blessing. Ask that his spirit would illuminate his word as it is preached and as it is heard. That God would be with us today, that he would be so gracious as to take his word and form our hearts, form our minds in conformity with it. That he would uh, cut us to the heart, that he would expose our sin, and that he would apply the healing balm of his grace. So let's go to God in prayer, ask for that. Father, we thank you that we have another opportunity this morning to sit under your word. We pray, Father, that you would work inside each of us. Lord, we know that it is our hearts that we must guard, as Proverbs tells us, and it is our hearts that, uh, that generate sin. It is where sin begins and proceeds from, as Jesus tells us. And Father, we know that what you desire from us is authentic worship from the heart in spirit and in truth. So Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would open our ears, that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us today in these 10 verses. God, we thank you for Paul writing this letter to the Romans. We thank you for all the, the work that you have done through this epistle in the 2,000 plus years uh, that the church has been uh, moving forward. God, we thank you that you have powerfully used these words, God, and that you would be so gracious as to providentially bring us to a Four Corners church under the sway of these precious words. God, we ask this morning that you would illuminate your word, that you would help us to see clearly what's here, that you would help me to preach clearly and help all of us to listen as your spirit takes your word and speaks to each of us. We thank you for this time. We thank you for one another. We pray that our hearts would abound today in love for one another, that we would 
obey Christ, as he says in the Gospel of John, that we would love one another, that we would love Christ by loving one another, that we would obey the Lord Jesus by loving one another. Help us do that in practical ways, even today, for your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this summary material that we have here, these 10 verses, is divided into two parts. And these will be our two points for this morning. I'll give you a second to write these down. First, the remnant who are chosen and the it's got uh, the problem. I'm not sure why that's up there, the problem. So the word there should be the rest. <laughs> Sorry. So uh, the remnant who are chosen and the rest who are hardened. So you just scratch that through. I do not know how that happened. But the remnant who are chosen and the rest who are hardened. So as we look first at the remnant who are chosen, let's go ahead and look at verses 1 to 6. So here they are, verses 1 to 6. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. And we heard that read earlier by Doug from 1 Kings 19. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Just a quick note here. I've discovered this week, reading uh, on this passage, that the name Baal uh, was so repulsive to the Israelites that they would actually not pronounce it when they would read it. They, they would say uh, the word shame, uh, basically, in its place. The, 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 the sheer hatred of the worship of this false God who neither hears nor speaks nor does. But this false God became the object of Israel's worship we see all throughout the Old Testament, this Canaanite deity. So always at the forefront of Paul's mind is the glory of God. This is always at the front. This is Paul's great theme. This is why Paul wants to share the gospel. This is why Paul explains all that he explains. It is the glory of God. And that's the reason we see Paul frequently. He's he's doing his theology, he's communicating his doctrine, and he just breaks out in praise. We see that often in Paul. He just, you see these, these random amens and blessed be and praise, and all of this, he, he just breaks out in this doxology often because his heart is filled with a desire to bring God glory, the hallowing of God's great name. Paul doesn't want anyone to misconstrue his gospel to be saying anything against God's glory. That is his great concern. In 1 Timothy 
chapter 1, verse 11, he calls the gospel that he preaches the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. It is the good news of God's glory. The good news, the gospel is the good news of God's glory in Christ. God is glorified in the gospel, the good news of God's grace in Christ, the message of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, as we have seen, going all the way back to chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 in Romans, and especially in chapter 3 and 4. And not only is God glorified in the message itself, so we know that God is glorified in the gospel, but he's not only glorified in it, but he is also glorified in the way that the message is going out to the world. In other words, God is glorified in the outworking of his redemptive plan. We could say it this way, that the way in which history has progressed brings maximum glory to the king. Brings maximum glory to God. And what Paul says here is that this plan, this God-glorifying plan, this redemptive plan centered on Christ does not involve the rejection of Israel. I'll say that again. This plan that concerns the glory of God, this redemptive plan does not involve the rejection of Israel. By no means has God rejected his people. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, whom he foreloved, whom he foreordained, whom he chose to be his very own people. Israel is God's chosen people, his chosen nation. And so commentators argue here over whether this is, a, you know, Paul's talking about something corporate with Israel or, or something else. But it's very clear, I think, that he is talking about corporate Israel as he enters into chapter 11. And we know that for two reasons, I think, and it's sandwiched. We see in verse 21, just, just bear with me quickly here, chapter 10, verse 21, but of Israel, he says, this entity, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And then in verse one, he says, I ask then as God rejected his people. What else could be in view there besides the people of Israel as a corporate entity that he has just mentioned. And we see this as he goes on. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against, there it is again, Israel. So it's sandwiched between these two references to Israel as a corporate entity. Israel is God's chosen people, his chosen nation from all the earth. Let me read to you a few passages from the Old Testament that make this clear. And there some of these I've read to you already as we started on this section, on chapter, uh, beginning in chapter 9. But let me just read some of these to you. Deuteronomy 32, 9. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8. For this one is robust. So I'm going to read all three verses to you. For you are a people 
holy to the Lord your God. By the way, who is it he's talking to? The gathered corporate entity of Israel, some of whom do not believe, some of whom are still grumbling in their hearts. And we've seen many of whom have been the object of God's punishment and judgment during their time in the wilderness, at least those who have preceded. So he's talking to all of them. Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8, for you, corporately, I would add, are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. There's foreknowledge. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Who is God talking about? He's talking about that entity that he brought out of Egypt. That whole thing. Amos chapter 3 verse 2 You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Once again, this idea of knowledge, and then we get it picked up in the New Testament, foreknowledge, this idea of of loving and choosing packed into the concept of God's foreknowledge. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. So how is it? That God has not rejected his people. After everything that we've read so far, how is it that God has not rejected his people? The answer boils down to one word, and it is the word remnant. Now, we've already seen this idea introduced to us back in chapter 9, verse 27. And you've heard me refer to this idea of a remnant many times. But we saw it appear in chapter 9, verse 27. And this is what, uh, what it says. And Israel cries out, and Isaiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. God never promised to save every single Israelite throughout history. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. We went through Genesis. We, we spent time there. And you will not find the notion that God saves every single person who is a descendant of Abraham. We've talked about how even from chapter 2 in Romans, that's what the Jews thought. We talked about stories from the rabbis about how Abraham is, is supposedly sitting down at the gate of hell. And anyone who comes that way who is a descendant of Abraham, Abraham says, nope. Turn them away. No descendant of mine can come here. That was the notion. That was the notion that existed in the time that Paul is preaching. This presumption on this ethnic identity. That simply because they were descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Through the 12 sons. Simply because they were descendants of Abraham. They were going to make it in the end. That's never promised. 
in the Bible, that God would save every single Israelite. So we see in chapter 9, verse 27, this notion of the remnant. But there in chapter 9, the remnant was presented primarily as a negative idea. So you remember when we came to that portion of the text, we saw that a remnant, the remnant is referred to as only a remnant. So what was being emphasized at that point in Paul's progression of thought is that God, he had just, he just quoted something about saving the Gentiles, but only a remnant. So the Gentiles have come in, but only a remnant of Israel has been saved. Here, by contrast, in chapter 11, the remnant is seen in its positive light. God has not rejected his people. See, Paul is saying, see, look. He has preserved a remnant, a group of true believers from his people, from this block called Israel. Some have been preserved. And we get the concept of true Israel within Israel. We saw that back in chapter 9, this remnant. Paul presents this remnant in two ways. So now we're going to kind of progress through uh, what Paul says here in the text. He presents this remnant in two ways. First, he points to himself. He says, who is writing to you? Uh, Who am I? He is an Israelite a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And he is a believer in Christ. He's a descendant of Abraham and he is a believer in Christ. So at the very least, we got a kind of Elijah situation going on, right? Elijah goes, he's in that cave on Horeb uh, and and he, he calls out to God. He says, I alone am left, God. And they're even seeking to kill me. But there's one at least left there. It's Elijah. So he thinks. Well, here we see that at the very least, there's Paul. He's a believer in Christ. He is part of ethnic Israel. He's part of this this corporate entity that Paul has just come out of chapter 10 talking about. And he says, look, I am an Israelite. I'm one of them. I'm part of that. And I'm a believer in Christ. But that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning of Paul's response. Many more Jews, like Paul, have trusted Christ. So remember, 3,000 Jews converted at Pentecost. 3,000 right there. Peter's sermon, the first sermon after the Holy Spirit has come down upon the apostles, he preaches and they are cut to the heart. What must we do to be saved? And in mass numbers, 3,000, and then later we have 5,000, 3,000 initially come to faith in Christ. But we also get something like Acts chapter 21, verse 20. Paul is there in Jerusalem and James and some others are speaking to Paul and this is what they say. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Now we've talked a lot about how you know there, there were few, but we need, do need to emphasize that that few is only relative 
to how large Israel was as a whole. It was still a sizable number. It's not as though this remnant only consisted of Jesus' apostles. And, well, Paul is one of Jesus' apostles. But it's not as though it consisted of the 12 plus Paul and Timothy and maybe a few others. Now, there are thousands of Jews who have come to faith in Christ. And to illustrate this remnant in his own day, as he's writing to the Romans, to illustrate this remnant, he goes back to the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19, as I mentioned before. Right after the contest between Elijah and the prophet of Baal, the prophets of Baal, Elijah is on the run from King Ahab's wife, Jezebel. She wants to kill him, as Doug read to us earlier. He goes to Horeb or Sinai and he cries out to God against Israel. Against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. In other words, God, there's no Israel left. Israel is gone. No one believes. They have become Baalites or whatever. They have gone over to the Canaanite gods. That great thing that Moses warned them against in Deuteronomy, that great thing that Joshua warned them against, they have, they have fallen after, they have chased after the gods of the peoples. I alone am left, and they seek my Life. There's no Israel left, only one man stands. The rest have fallen into pagan idolatry. But then Paul points to God's response to Elijah. So there's a little bit of whining going on here. Notice we have some, we have some fear, we have some whining, but we have some other things going on with this great prophet of God. And once again, that, that's, that's really helpful for us. We saw this in Genesis, that even as we go through and we look at these glorious figures of, of Bible history, we see their, their sin. We see their stains. We see their imperfections. Uh, we see the ways that they disobey God, the ways they rebel against God, the ways that they are not Christ, the ways that they are not perfect. And every single one of them needs a Savior. We saw that, remember, with Noah. I mean, there's Noah. He gets off the ark, and he is passed out drunk. We saw what happened with his son, Ham. So this is an encouragement to us that here we have this, this great biblical figure. This one, you know, if kids would say, who do you want to be like? I want to be like Elijah. We'd say, that's great. What a great role model for your life is the prophet Elijah. And here we have this, this whining going on. He just wants to die. He's under a broom tree. I just want to die. I'm done with life. A little like Jonah. And Paul points out that God responds to him this way, I have kept for myself, Elijah, 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And there's a lot, I think, that God is saying to Elijah in that moment. And if we were going through 1 Kings 19, we could talk about that. But what's important here is for us to see that there are 7,000 believers in the Lord God of Israel that Elijah does not know about. 
that God is, has sovereignly preserved, he has sovereignly chosen these 7,000 men who will not go after false gods, who like Elijah are willing to face death rather than abandon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul quickly moves from the illustration to his conclusion in verses 5 to 6. So if you'll look with me there, verses 5 to 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So let me just conclude this point by looking, making a couple of observations about this remnant. I just want to make two briefly, two observations about this remnant. And they're just right here. At least this first one is clear from the text. So first, chosen by grace, not of works. Now this is really important to see. This remnant is not a slice of good among the bad. And we remember with Noah, I bring him up again, uh, in chapter 6 of Genesis, the Bible says that Noah found favor with God. Why? It's not, we have to understand this in light of all of Scripture, it's not as though everyone else was lost in sin, but Noah was chugging it out good. He was a really good guy. No, Noah is also in Adam. Noah also died physically, and he died. And he died physically because of the spiritual death that reigns over humanity. Noah was part of the human family. He found favor in the eyes of God because God chose to give Noah grace. And all that accompanied or flowed from that came out of God's gracious election. And we see the same thing here. This is not a slice of good among the bad, but rather a slice of chosen among the fallen. A slice of chosen among the fallen. 2 Timothy 1.9. This is a great verse for getting at what Paul is, is saying here, that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now, why is it that if it is by grace, it cannot be by works? And that's where Paul ends here in verse 6. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. If works plays a role, then grace would no longer be grace. And by the way, I'll just say this. I think it's important. There, the idea that God, that foreknowledge means that God looks down into the future and he sees sincere, genuine commitment and trust from the heart of a person and then on the basis of what he foresees down into the future, he chooses them. There is no escaping the fact that at some point you have to ascribe that work of the heart, that work of faith back to that person, and you have to conclude that God chooses based on what a person does. Paul eradicates that. It's here. It's in 2 Timothy 1.9. 
It's in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Even the good works we do are prepared beforehand by God. I mean, come on. Everything by his electing grace. Grace ceases to be grace when it is based on works. And Paul's already said that, Romans 4, 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. What if it was 90% grace and 10% works? Or what if it was 99% grace and 0.1% works? Here's the thing. When you stand before God on that day, then it will be 99% God giving you what you do not deserve and 1% of God paying you back. There's no place for that in the theology of the Bible. There is no place for God giving us anything we deserve when it comes to salvation because we know what we deserve when it comes to salvation. No one is good, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God of God. So we see that this remnant is chosen by grace. It is not of works. It is not as though God just looked down and and he chose the ones. He just kind of plucked out the, the good fruit. Like you go to a tree and you take the bad fruit, the rotten fruit, and you throw that to the side and you put the good shiny fruit into a basket. That's not the way it happened. So first, chosen by grace. The second observation before we move on that I want you to see is that the remnant was chosen with hope. Chosen with hope. Let me give you a quote from one commentator, Douglas Moo. He says this, God's preservation of a remnant, listen closely, God's preservation of a remnant is not only evidence of his present faithfulness to Israel, It is also a pledge of hope for the future of the people. And this, I think, is a great error that people make. They exhaust, and I think what Paul's going to go on and say at the end of Romans 11 will make this clear, but they exhaust uh, God's faithfulness to Israel, God's not rejecting Israel. They exhaust that in Christ is true Israel, and there's the remnant, period, Well, that's not where Paul stops. That's not where Paul stops in Romans 11. And the remnant itself is not meant to be a a, a period. It is meant to be a dot, dot, dot. The remnant points forward to a hope for this entity, for this people, a future hope. And we'll look at that in a moment when we come to hardening. The one big implication from this whole section is basically our call to worship for this morning. Psalm 94, 14, for the Lord will not forsake his people. That's the big idea. If there's anything that needs to be driven home into your heart, it is this truth, God will not forsake his people. What confidence we have in the Lord as we think about his faithfulness to Israel in the midst of all her sinning, in the midst of all her wretchedness. Read Hosea. Read what they will go off and do. Read the end of Deuteronomy. Those curses in Deuteronomy 28 are horrific. 
that Israel will justly deserve those things. All of Israel, it appears to Elijah, have gone after non-existent gods. Still, still, the Lord will not forsake his people. Maybe that's something you need to hear this morning loud and clear. You've come in here this morning, you feel beat up. Satan is the great accuser. He's the slanderer. That's what he does. That's his MO. That's his job description. And he has been chewing at you and gnawing at you and scraping at you. And you just feel absolutely lost. If you are in Christ, you are not lost. No one can pluck you from his hand. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? No one shall pluck them from my Father's hand. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. If this is not true for Israel, how can it be true for you, people of God? If it is not true for Israel as an entity... In God's historical plan, if it is not true for them, then how can it be true for you, people of God? If it is not true in Romans 9 through 11, then what makes it true at the end of Romans 8? This is one of the great implications of this question of God's faithfulness to Israel. So that's the first thing we need to see is the remnant who are chosen. The second is the rest who are hardened. Look with me at verses 7 to 10 as we wrap up this morning. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So Paul has argued that God has not rejected his people because he has preserved a remnant. But God's electing purposes do not just have the positive side of choosing a remnant. Remember, God is in control of all things. He is sovereign over all Things. So we're not to just look at the positive side of God choosing a remnant. He has also chosen to bring a hardness over the hearts of most of Israel. Over the nation, corporately conceived. Over the nation, you could say, institutionally. Is it not the, the council that says to the people, have any of us believed in him? Have any of us believed in this Christ? Why would you believe in, in, or this Jesus? Why would you believe in this Jesus as the Christ? Do any of us believe in him? No. Why would you? So institutionally, corporately, and largely, hardness has come over Israel. There is the remnant on one hand, and the rest on the other hand. The rest of the people of Israel were hardened, and they're hardened in their hardened state. They chased the righteousness 
that comes by their own works. And we've seen that as we've looked at these chapters. In order to prepare for this conclusion, Paul introduced the idea of God's hardening back in chapter 9. After describing what God did to Pharaoh, he writes this. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. I'll read that again. Chapter 9, verse 18. God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, Paul now circles back. He circles back to his use of that word with respect to Pharaoh. And of course, it makes perfect sense with respect to Pharaoh. I mean, we're ready to conclude that. We read the story in Exodus and we see, I mean, Pharaoh's this, this pagan man who thinks himself to be God, who is worshiped as God who from the time he uh, takes his rule begins to construct his afterlife uh, tomb so that he can move on into the afterlife as a deity as well. So when we get to that in Romans 9, we're, we're quite happy to read that. Yeah, God hardened Pharaoh. But Paul's purpose for bringing up that was to get to this point where he says that God has actually hardened Israel. As I've said before, the election of some and the reprobation of others concerns the mass of fallen humanity. God's decrees to save some and bring his wrath on others has to do with humanity as a fallen race. God conceives of humanity, all of it as fallen, and in that he chooses to show mercy to some. Otherwise, mercy doesn't make any sense unless there's a, there's a fall in this already in place conceptually. And so God chooses from the mass of fallen humanity, he chooses to show mercy to some and to bring his wrath on others. From fallen humanity, he chooses some to show the glory, back to God's glory, to show the glory of his mercy and he uses the others to show the glory of his judgment on sin. So how does Paul describe this hardening effect? Well, he goes back to Moses and Isaiah and David. He goes to Deuteronomy 29.4 and Isaiah 29.10 and Psalm 69, 22, and 23, which is a messianic psalm referred to many times in the New Testament. But Paul goes back to describe Israel's hardened state, which had existed in the past as well, but has now reached its culmination. He goes back to the very beginning. He goes to the law, and he goes to the prophets, and he goes to the writings. By the way, this shows that God's plan had always been clear to Israel in their scriptures. And Jesus says to the people in his day, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Because who was it who spoke through Moses? It was God. And who is Christ? He is God. He is the word of the Lord. We read throughout Genesis, and the word of the Lord came to him, and the word of the Lord came to him. Well, now the word of the Lord has come and taken on flesh. If you believed Moses you would believe me. All of this was written in their scriptures. This is what Luke 24 is all about. Jesus is explaining to them and he says that, they, uh, that they're, they're culpable for their lack of understanding. The disciples, after he's risen, he, he describes all the things from the Old Testament scriptures about him. 
And the apostles, of course, are unpacking all that is in Israel's scriptures about what is happening in their day. It's always been there all along. To be hardened is described here as insensitivity to God's truth, a spirit of stupor. Blindness and deafness, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day throughout Israel's history, culminating in their rejection of Christ. And in the words of David, this hardened, obstinate, insensitive, blinded, deafened state leads only to ruin. Where there is expected to be prosperity and satisfaction, the the image of a table Instead, there is ruin. As David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever or continually. You know, this really is ground zero for putting God's sovereignty and human responsibility together. I mean, this is ground zero. This is one of the best places in all of the Bible for seeing how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility come together. Israel did it. God did it. Yes and yes. God gave them a spirit of stupor. God placed the stumbling stone in their path. And yet they in their sin and folly, were darkened and blinded and hardened. And they stumbled over that stumbling stone rather than believing. God did it. Israel did it. This is the great mystery. But we have to close on this important point. As we finish up this morning, I want to close on this important point. As we anticipate what will come later in chapter 11, I want you to look with me as we think about hardening of Israel. So uh, a small portion, relatively speaking, a minority of Israel, uh, of specific Israelites are part of this remnant. The rest, the large rest, the remainder hardened. So I want you to go with me to verse 25 as we think about this hardening that God has done. He's writing to Gentiles. I think many Gentile interpreters throughout history have failed to do justice to these first words. Lest you be wise in your own sight. By the way, Paul's writing to a largely Gentile church. Most of the Christians in Rome are Gentiles. And so he is speaking to that group. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Or perhaps even here, we have Jews in mind who are part of the remnant. They're believers. They think, well, great, I'm the remnant. The rest are gone, but I'm part of the remnant. Here's what he says. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery brothers. Let me just say something. The the relationship of Israel to the church and what will happen with respect to Israel is mysterious. Paul even calls it a mystery. 
So it should not be one of those things that, that causes Christians to be tearing at each other, ripping at each other, and fighting. This is a mysterious thing. But Paul nonetheless wants to clear some of that up. And this is what he says. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Once again, he can only there be speaking of corporate Israel because it is largely, it is this large chunk of the remainder of corporate Israel that's been hardened. What else could he be talking about here when he uses the word Israel? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, I want you to just notice these two words. Two words, partial and until. Partial and until. The hardening of the rest is not the end of the story. It is not the final chapter of the story that there would be this little rinky-dink remnant of Israel and this influx of Gentiles. How arrogant is that? Isn't it why Paul starts by saying, lest you be wise in your own sight? And if you follow his logic leading up to that point, how he, he talks against arrogance and pride among branches which have been grafted in. Christ has come. Little remnant of Israel. All the Gentiles flooding in. That's not the last chapter of this book. This hardening is partial. And it has an expiration date. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. What an amazing thing it is going to be. And this is for later conversation. What an amazing thing it's going to be when this hardening comes to an end. What an amazing thing it is going to be in God's powerful, gracious plan. When the expiration date on this partial hardening comes to an end. And as verse 26 says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. By the way, that doesn't mean every Israelite throughout time. That's something God is going to do in redemptive history, through Christ, not outside of Christ, through Christ, to undo this partial hardening. So what's our response? It's humility. It has to be. Lest you be wise in your own sight. But it is also trust. It is trust in the God who never casts his people away. He never casts us away. And as those who have become part of the household of God, as Paul says in Ephesians, and as those who have been grafted in, we are part of God's people. And we can be assured that God will not cast his people away. Praise God for that story in John 21 of Jesus' restoration of Peter. I mean, if anybody fell away, wouldn't it be Peter? If anybody was to be rejected by God, wouldn't it be Peter? He denied Christ, not once, not twice, three times, and 
He denied Christ not before a Sanhedrin uh, ready with weapons to destroy him, but before some servant people out by the fire. Such little threat, such great denial, and yet our Lord, our Redeemer, our sympathizing high priest came to Peter and said, Peter, you are still mine. I have not abandoned you. I have not rejected you. So too will be the case with this entity called Israel. Whatever that means and however that plays out in the future, and so too it will be with all of us this morning who have Christ Jesus as our Lord, who have submitted from the heart, obeyed from the heart, the standard of teaching to which we were committed, who have confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, who have called on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. Praise God for that confidence. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for your steadfast love your faithfulness, these great attributes that we find at the very beginning of the Bible and they go all throughout. Father, we worship you because you are this promise-making, promise-keeping God. Father, we thank you that in the great history of Israel, the Jewish people, the ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, that in that, Lord, we see your faithfulness. We see your faithfulness in preserving a remnant. And in the future, we will see your faithfulness in undoing the hardening that has come upon your people, Israel. God, we praise you that you are this kind of God. We praise you that you are merciful and gracious with us. God, that in our sin, you, Jesus, sympathize with us. In our weakness, you were sinless, and yet you know what it is to be tempted. You know what it is to suffer, and you alone know what it is to suffer and be tempted perfectly without sin. We thank you, Jesus, that in our weakness and in our suffering and in our sinfulness, you are merciful to us. You help us, you grow us, you lift us up, you conform us into your image, and you by no means cast us away. We praise you for that, our Lord. Thank you for your word today. Thank you for the Lord's Supper, which we get to celebrate here in a moment. We ask that we would commune with you, Christ. We pray that we would commune rightly with each other, and we pray that we would remember you as the one who was given as a ransom to redeem us, to deliver us from darkness. The one who became for us the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. We worship you, Jesus. We pray that during this time, we would, uh, our hearts would be uh, reverent, that we would be thankful, and that we would examine ourselves. We pray all this in your name. Amen.